Now, good morning to you again. Turn to the person next to you and say, God bless you. I'll bet you that was the first God bless you you heard all week. <laughs> That's the way it is sometimes in life, isn't it? Well, we're so glad we're here in God's house and that we can come and worship the Lord, that we can also sing praises to him. We can talk to him through prayers, but he also can speak to us through his word. And so this is the time in our service when we are so privileged to have that experience. And so we thank God for his word and we thank God for his spirit that ministers the word so that we can be fed and that we can be encouraged in our daily walk with him. Now, people uh, learn in different ways. Would you agree? People learn in different ways. For example, some uh, learn very well uh, through thought out and carefully crafted lecture or books. In other words, these are people who learn by hearing and by reading. And so there are people like that. You might be one of those. But then there are also people who learn best by being hands-on. They learn best by doing. Okay, when they do it, then they get it. Okay, and then there are other people who, like myself, we learn best by seeing, by seeing an example. All right, and so when we see it, we get it. All right, that's the way it it goes. And so perhaps you're one of these three. Maybe you're all three. Maybe you're a combination of this, that and the other. Or maybe you learn by your own uh, manner, whatever it is. But we need what one of the most powerful ways that we learn is by seeing. However way one learns best, you will find that the all of these were used by Jesus when he lived on the face of this earth. Uh, For example, In his preaching, he was always on target and he was penetrating. It was just amazing that when Jesus spoke, people listened and people were infected by, uh, affected by what he said. And then in his encouragements to the disciples to go out and share the gospel uh, after going with him and, and watching him do it. This was masterful and this was successful. Uh, he was very good. Imagine just three years. He he was able to to get 12 people so uh, uh, trained that they could go out and literally turn the world upside down, as the Bible says. But by and large, his personal example was undoubtedly one of the most impactful and influential tools in his arsenal for effecting change and transformation. It's hard to get out of our minds, isn't it? The picture, the video, if you will, (laughs) of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. What a powerful, powerful example. And so this is uh, what uh, Jesus did when he was on the face of the earth. Now, people say to themselves, well, how powerful is a a life lived? How powerful is it? Uh, Just recently, I heard a testimony uh, of of a person who said that his father was uh, willing to accept Jesus Christ as his personal savior as a result of the life that uh, he lived before his father. The father recognized that the life of his child was living, that the life his child was living before him was very special. And the father concluded that the God of his child was special as well. And so he wanted to know him. You see, in the daily life, we have to ask ourselves, is the daily life we live before our family and friends worthy of the God we claim to worship and serve? 
a life that is well lived before family and friends, worthy of God, will be a powerful, powerful example. And so keep that in mind, folks. Keep that in mind as you go about living your daily life. There, not only is God looking at us, but also people around us are looking at us. And they are making uh, and drawing conclusions. And so we must not forget that. But when Christ walked on the earth, he literally lived all that he claimed and taught. And therefore, he was able to touch and transform lives forever. All right. So Jesus becomes our model. And this brings us to the message today in the book of Philippians, as we go back to our uh, series on the book of Philippians, especially chapter two, verses five through eleven. Now, we have to go back and do a little bit of review just to help ourselves. The big message of the book of Philippians is joy. OK, how can we have real joy? And of course, it started out that our real joy is found in our relationship with Christ. That's where it all begins. Real joy is found in our dwelling and unity with one another as we approach uh, chapter 2. Real unity happens when we live in Christ-like humility with one another. We ought not to think that unity comes automatically. Just because we dwell in a community called a church, we cannot assume that all of a sudden everybody's going to agree, everybody's going to work well together, everybody... In the way my kids put it, we're all going to play nice. You know, we cannot assume that just because we are all believers. But the scripture comes out and says we must live in Christ-like humility. And Jesus Christ is the best example of that humility. And we can uh, as and we can see it as this morning we discover who he was and what he did and what he received. Now. For those who are who learn best by seeing, Jesus becomes the prime example of the length, depth, and breadth of real humility. I have to confess, all of us, when we hear the word humility, we all have different ideas, don't we? We all have different ideas. And so for one person, he looks at humility, he looks at this and he says, nah, you know, you're just somebody who can be walked over. You can just someone who can be taken advantage of. See, we all have different ideas of what humility is. Well, the gold standard for humility is Jesus Christ. And that's the humility we want to look at today. Now, I want us to go back to help set the stage and look at verses 3 and 5. Do something a little bit different this morning. In honor of reading God's word, in a moment, I'm going to ask that we all stand. Verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 5 will come up on the screen. And I'm going to ask that I lead you in the reading of God's word. All right? Verses 3 and 5. Let's all stand together as, those, as that verse comes uh, to us on the screen. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. Thank you very much. As you listen and read to this, this sets the pace. This sets the pace. It tells us that in humility of mind, that's where it's concerned, how we think, 
how we think. And it's going to be very important here. There should be no debate or doubt, hesitation or reservation about regarding others as more important than ourselves, considering the interests of others and not just our own with humility of mind. This is not something we pray about. This is not something that we sit there and contemplate and say, oh, should I do this? Or, you know, does God want me to do this? No, God clearly wants us to think this way. He wants us to be this way. And so this is where our focus will be as we move forward. So there are three things that we want to see for in, the, in understanding Christ-like humility. This is found in verses 6 through 11. And first of all, who Jesus was in verse 6. Jesus was and is eternally God. Let's read, uh, let's look at uh, verse 6. It says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does this mean? If you look at the word form, it means the exact essence of, okay? Jesus had the exact character and nature of God. In other words, whatever makes God, God, Jesus possessed the same, the very same thing. Everything you could say about God, you could say about Jesus. There is nothing absent. There was nothing missing. He is God. And Jesus is all that God is and has. He is 100% God. Now, this is supported in other passages as well. Some of you are already ahead of me, and you're saying to yourself, of course, it's John chapter 1, verse 1, isn't it? When it says in there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, in eternity past, Jesus was God. All right, let's get that straight as we go forward from here. My favorite verse is John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Come on, how much more simple and direct can you be than that? All right, Jesus Christ is God. And then it goes on further, but he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Another way of saying equality with God would be to say, being God, Jesus, being God, did not think, did not think this is a thing to be grasped. Now, what does the word grasp mean? The word grasp means literally to clutch, to prize, to embrace, or to hold on tightly, to keep to oneself. All right? And so, being God Jesus had all kinds of rights and privileges and prerogatives, all right? Imagine that, being God. Being God has its perks, okay? It has its privileges. But with all of that in mind, Jesus said this was not something to hold on to tightly. This was something that he was willing to uh, release, But he didn't feel like he had to selfishly hang on to them for a greater good and for the glory of God. Jesus was very secure in his deity, uh, that his deity would not be lessened, diminished, compromised, or impaired in any way. He was able to let it go for the glory of God. 
Now imagine this for just a moment. Imagine this for just a moment. Jesus came from the heights of heaven down to the depths of earth. He had no reservations or qualms about releasing his rights and privileges as God. He did not hold on to them tightly. And and we must ask ourselves, can we say the same? What rights and privileges do we hold on to so tenaciously? Are we humble enough to trust God and humbly serve others, even if it means giving up what we think we deserve? You see, that's the mindset. That's the mindset. There is nothing that important that I have or that I deserve that I can't give up in order to serve others. That was Jesus' mindset. That was What does it mean by humility of mind? What does it mean by Christ-like humility? It's that mentality where we say, nothing I have, nothing that I have that I deserve is that is is worthy of hanging on to if it's going to get in the way of serving others. Christ-like humility involves setting aside our rights, our privileges, and our prerogatives. And this is probably one of the greatest hurdles that all of us as human beings have to overcome because we have so much pride. We have so much of our own selfishness involved that we hold on to things. We're very protective. We're very protective. But Christ-like humility involves setting aside our rights, privileges, and prerogatives. So ask yourself that tough question. What is it? that you value so much that you are not willing to give up? And why? Well, Christ-like humility continues. It doesn't just stop with verse 6. If you look at what Jesus did in verses 7 through 8, Jesus chose to become human. He chose to take on all of the characteristics of humanity. All right? He, kept on, he, he took on humanity. Let's read, turn your attention to verses 7 through 8. It says here in verse 7, it says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, it says. What does this mean, he emptied himself? Does that mean that he just let go of his deity? He no longer was God? Is that what that means? Not really. The word empty actually means he kept his deity. He laid aside his uh, deity. He laid aside his privileges as God. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. Jesus did not exchange his deity for humanity. He just set aside his rights and privileges that came along with being God. In other words, he chose not to use his rights and privileges to make his life easier or to overcome his problems. He didn't use them for his own personal benefit or advantage. And can you imagine Jesus facing the problems us human beings face? You know? Could you imagine the people that were criticizing him, the Pharisees would come at him with tooth and nail, you know, and they just wanted to just put him down, you know? They didn't think much of Jesus Christ. Suppose Jesus were just to say, okay, I've had enough of you guys. And he calls down a legion of angels from heaven, special forces angels. He says, come on down here and wipe these guys out. He could have done that. He could have done that. But he didn't. But he didn't. He took it. He took it. You see? 
He did not use his privileges and his rights to make his life on earth as a human being easier. You see, that's what it means by he emptied himself. You see also the word form again and what used as describing him as taking on the form of a bond servant. In other words, it's the same word that was used earlier. The very character and nature of a slave he took on. Jesus didn't put on a slave's costume. He didn't put on slave makeup (laughs) to make himself look like a slave, you know. Nah, nah. He actually took on the very character and nature. Whatever a bondservant is and does, Jesus is and does. So at least you, we think that Jesus was just playing games, that Jesus was just playing a role just to, you know, to, get, to get what he wanted done. That's not the case. He actually became a bondservant. And so this support is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Inwardly, inwardly, Jesus took on the role of a servant. In fact, this is emphasized again when it says in that verse 7, it says, made in the likeness of men. The New New International Version translates it this way, being made in human likeness. Outwardly, you saw Jesus, you would think he was just another human servant. So Jesus, both inwardly and outwardly, took on the role of a human servant. Being human inwardly and outwardly, Jesus was not only fully God, but fully man. That's why that word emptied is so important. It doesn't mean that he gave up being God. No, he still was God. He just held back on what aspects of being God he would use. But he was still also fully man. He can't, therefore, he can and does empathize with our weaknesses and with our struggles with sin and temptation. You see, if he were just, if he just kept the God side of him, it could be legitimately said, God, you don't understand my problems. Why? Because you're God and I'm human. But being both fully God and fully human, he can understand both sides. He can understand it fully. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? I can fully come to God. And you can't say, God, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't know that I have PSLE looking at me in the face. You don't know that I have my O levels looking at me. You don't know that I have this interview waiting for me. You don't know what it is like to live in this, uh, this place where we're tempted all the time. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. We can't say that. God says in his loving way, oh, but I do know. Oh, but I do know. And I can help you. And I can help you. And I will help you. 
One author put it this way about God taking on humanity and also keeping his deity. He put on servanthood without putting off Godhood. (laughs) Isn't that a beautiful way to say it? He was both fully man and fully God. That's what verse 7 tells us. Well, let's go to verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says here that he was in appearance as a man, human appearance, human likeness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He submitted himself. What do slaves do? What do servants do? But they serve the master. And so he submitted to the will of the Father. Mark chapter 14, verse 36 tells us that when Jesus was in Gethsemane, he says, yet not what I will, but what you will is the most important thing. You see? And this also speaks to us as well, is that we need to seek to do the will of God. And we need to seek the will of God. It's amazing to me how much I debate with God sometimes. I'm making a confession here, okay, because I don't want to use anybody else. All right, But I debate with God. And I say, God, I don't want to do this. It's not the right timing, God. It's not the right way, thing to do, God. It's not fair, God. Have any of you ever said that? <laughs> you know, and we say that to God. When really... Because we are his servants, it should be your will, not my will, be done. And he was willing to go all the way to the cross to accomplish this. The cross these days is sanitized. It's sanitized, okay? Uh, One person, (laughs) I, I think he was being a little facetious, but actually he was being quite accurate. He says these days, the cross, in in the in the day of Jesus Christ, the cross was a horrible thing. It was a detestable thing. It was a despicable thing. It was something that was never spoken of in good company. All right? People would not say, hey, how's the cross today? You know, no, people wouldn't do that. The cross was something you just avoided like the plague. You didn't want to talk about it. It was so horrible horrible and horrifying. And so, but to these days, what do people do? We take the cross. We go plate the thing. We go plate the thing, you know. We put crosses up like there's nobody's business, you know. We 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 put it on our stationery. We put it on our business cards and all this kind of stuff, thinking in some way that we're glor- we're glorifying the Lord. But in some ways, we've kind of diminished the impact of the cross. Okay, I'm not saying those things are wrong if done tastefully, but however, the cross has been sanitized today. On the cross, Jesus felt what, was, what it was like to be separated and abandoned by God. Matthew chapter 27 tells us this. On the cross, Jesus was made sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that. Why? So that Jesus can become the mediator between God and man. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 6. And this is what it says there. It says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. 
Because Jesus Christ submitted to the will of God, he became the mediator between God and man. And if you've never accepted him as your personal savior, if you never have, please, please do so today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you know you're going to be here tomorrow? I didn't see any hands go up. No, I'm asking you to. Okay. How many of you know that you're going to be here the end of tonight, end of this day? Can you can you don't know? How many of you know that you're going to be here the next hour? You don't know. Are you willing to let the mediator, the savior, pass by and not accept him as your savior? I don't think that's a wise move. Not a very wise move. As I was speaking to God about this, you know, I, I uh, sometimes, you know, you have to just kind of put your pastor face down and you have to get really personal with the people. And I guess I've been here long enough to know that not everybody who comes to service is a believer. All right? I, you know, it's the odds are there's somebody out here who, who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But then there are also... There's people who've been here week after week, year after year, month after month, and so on, season after season. And they've heard this plea from God to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Frankly, I'm quite, quite concerned and worried about you. And it's not because I'm a nice guy. It's not just because, you know, I'm a pastor. It's because I am genuinely concerned about your soul. I'm genuinely concerned that if you or I die, and pass away off this earth. Will I meet you in heaven? Will I be singing with you around the throne of grace? I am truly concerned about you. Yeah, you might have your reasons. Why? You're not ready to accept Christ. I respect that. But nevertheless, it doesn't hold me back from continuing to encourage you. To please accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. We're all living on borrowed time, my friend. Every minute that we have without Christ is a minute of grace from God. It's a minute of grace from God. And I beseech you, just like I said in the Good Friday, we beg you to be reconciled with God. And if you want to talk to me about that after the service, it would be my privilege to do so. Please, please, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is the one mediator. So Christ-like humility involves submitting to the will of God. And Jesus Christ was the supreme example of this. Not my will, but your will be done. Okay? Now, the last thing that marks the, the um, Christ-like humility is found in verses 9 through 11. What Jesus received... Jesus was exalted for what he did to the glory of God. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. I have the parts underlined for you on the screen. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice here, God highly exalted him. He elevated him because his son had descended to earth and had entered into great humility. Now he exalts him. He bestowed on him the name which is above every name. It says in verse 9. And I'll tell you right now, the name isn't Jesus. That's his birth name. But that is not the name that was given to him by God. Where is that? Uh, Why did this happen? Why did he give him this name? So that in verse 10 it says, every knee will bow. Every knee. What knees? How many knees? Every knee. Ones in heaven, probably referring to angels and saints. Knees on, on, when he says on earth, it is those who are living on earth and then, and under the earth. He probably refers to the dead, to the demons and the, and Satan himself. Every knee will bow, it says. And not only that, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, there's the name, Lord. Everybody will bow down and confess that he is Lord. The word confess there means to acknowledge, to affirm, and to agree. For once in our world, everybody will agree. (laughs) There will be no disagreement. And that's the time that is, is waiting for us ahead. When he uses the word Lord, it means the one who has the right to rule. One who has sovereign rule over all, he says. That's the name that will be given to Jesus at that time, Lord. And this says, to the glory of God the Father. You know, if he left that out, it wouldn't tell the whole story. It's so important that they put in that last part, to the glory of God. Because all of these things happened. Jesus coming down from heaven to dwell on the earth and then to die and then go back into heaven. All of that happened. What? To the glory of God. One author put it this way. This is not universal salvation, but universal confession. Not all that will be, not all will be saved, but all will confess that Jesus is Lord. You can bow before him today as your savior, or you can face him one day as your judge. You can confess him now with joy as your Lord and Savior, or you will someday confess him as Lord in shame and in terror. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. And so choose wisely, my friend. Christ-like humility involves seeking to glorify God. So what are we going to do with all this that we heard? I mean, some of you are sitting out there and you're saying, oh, oh, another message, okay. You're saying you're really struggling this morning, some of you. Boy, if you fell asleep, you'd fall forward and crack your heads, you know. You're just really tired, aren't you? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But what are you going to do with all this that you, were, that you managed to hear? What did you? You hear, Christ-like humanity involves setting aside rights and privileges. Ah, Jesus did that. It means submitting to the will of God. Ah, Jesus did that. It means seeking to glorify God. 
Jesus certainly did that. That's Christ-like humility. Most think that there isn't much they can do to influence the world nor the people around them. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Most Christians come, they sit in the pew, they hear God's word, they leave the place believing that uh, I can't do much. I would love to do more, but I can't. I'm just not equipped. I'm not able. The favorite one is I don't have time. Okay? So they therefore think that there's nothing they can do. Well, let me challenge you to ask yourself this question. Do these marks of Christ-like humanity, humility characterize your relationship with those to those in the body of Christ. I'm just asking you the question. Okay? I'm making an assumption here that you're part of the body of Christ here. So do these marks of Christ like him characterize your relationship with those in the body of Christ? Well, who are you talking about, Pastor? Well, I'm talking about three groups of people. Do those who are below you, those who are beside you, or those who are above you? Do, does Christ-like humility characterize your relationship with them? To put it another way, to put it in other ways, does, do these, do, does Christ-like humility characterize your relationship to those you help, those who come alongside you, and those who lead and guide you? You see, all of us say to ourselves, there's not much I can do. But there's more that you can do than you think. Why? Because all of us are in relationship. And we're usually in relationship with people that we're trying to help, people who've come alongside us and are helping us to help other people or even help us. And then we're also in relationship with people who are above us, who are trying to help us directly by leading and guiding us. So ask yourself these tough questions and make the tough changes to be more Christ-like. Our greatest example of humility is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He humbly set aside his rights and privileges. He humbly submitted to the will of God. And humbly, he sought to glorify God. The conclusion is pretty clear. If we are ever to experience true unity, we must pursue and practice Christ-like humility. So when are you going to start if you're not doing it already? Okay? When are you going to intensify your efforts in pursuing and practicing Christ-like humility? Perhaps it's now. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, In some ways, we are stunned and shocked that, Father, you ask us to be like your son. You ask that we treat one another with the same humility that your son had. It's pretty clear, Lord. Your dear son 
was willing to set aside all of his rights and privileges. He was willing to submit to your will. He was willing, Lord, to glorify, seek to glorify you in all that he does. May that be our heart's desire today. May there be unity in our church when there is humility, Christ-like humility. In Jesus' name, amen.